Welcome to Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For, the podcast dedicated to integrative health and healing from breast cancer and breast cancer treatment using the best of conventional and natural medicine. Your host, Deborah Beaumont, is an advanced practice nurse, functional medicine practitioner, and fellow breast cancer survivor. Welcome to today's episode of Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For. This is Deborah Beaumont, and I'm your host. I am very pleased to bring you a guest expert that I think you're going to find really informative and fascinating. Today's show is being hosted by Beyond Breast Cancer, Reclaiming Your Health and Vitality Post-Treatment. I wanted to tell you about the group I'm really excited about. It's going to be starting in July, and I really hope you'll consider contacting me to find out more information if you're interested. This is going to be a group where we really look at breast cancer and breast cancer recovery from a very whole holistic perspective. And we're going to be looking at the physical and emotional healing that we all know is part of this long-term recovery process. I think sometimes in the midst of treatment, we get so caught up in the next treatment and the next appointment that sometimes our emotional healing gets put on the back burner because we're just so busy trying to deal with the next step. And so I think that this is going to be a really great opportunity for us to come together as a community and look at healing from a very holistic perspective. So if you're interested in finding out more information, please email me at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com and www.MindBodyNutritionRN.com. With that being said, I'd like to move on to introducing our guest. I'm really looking forward to this interview. Joining me today is Lara Adler. She's an environmental toxins expert and educator, and she's the self-prescribed toxin geek. And she is so informative, and I know she's helped so many health coaches and professionals and practitioners understand toxins and what's affecting us in a really down-to-earth way, because I think we're getting more information about toxins, but maybe it makes you roll your eyes because a lot of those chemicals we're talking about are big, long words, but Lara makes it really approachable and understandable for people. So as I said, she's a toxins expert, educator, and she's a certified holistic health coach. She works with health professionals to better understand the links between environmental chemicals and chronic health issues. Everything from weight gain, diabetes, thyroid disease, infertility, and definitely cancer. She does this so they can support their clients and patients better. She also has students who are healthy-minded consumers who are proactive about protecting their health and their family's health and well-being. She takes a practical, real-world approach to dealing with toxins. She's informative, accessible, and actionable, really works to make it so it's free from overwhelm. She is my favorite toxins geek, and I'd like to welcome her today. Thanks, Deborah. I'm happy to be here. Oh, this is so great. I think you have such great information. And and I think the real benefit of my following you is that we hear so much about toxins in the news. I think we get hit with it on a regular basis. Yeah. And I think that it can have two effects. It can be very technical, so people don't necessarily understand how it translates to their everyday life, or they just kind of check out because it gets really frightening. Yeah. Could you actually talk about that? I, I know that you started as a health coach and you moved into like this being your, your passion in terms of your work. So what has that journey been for you and, and what drew you to this area? Um, really, I think the biggest thing that drew me to this area, one is, I guess there's a couple of things, you know, it's to me, it's just a fascinating subject. I also saw that there was a massive gap in the education of allied health professionals, health coaches, nutritionists, you know, chiropractors, acupuncturists, fitness professionals, et cetera, like that, that are actively working with folks on addressing chronic health issues. And there was a massive gap in the education in this space. But, you know, like, I, like you said in the intro, I did start out as a health coach and that certainly wasn't my first career. career. It was sort of a later in life uh, transition as it is for a lot of people. And, you know, when I, after I got my certification as a health coach, I it wasn't really sure what I was doing and from a business standpoint and was just kind of like a generalist that could help anyone with anything, or at least so I thought. You know, I, I decided that, you know, weight loss was something that a lot of people were coming to me for. It was something that I could easily focus on. I had a number of clients that that was their primary motive was weight loss. And some of the clients that I worked with uh, had wonderful success. They lost a bunch of weight, they kept it off, they felt really great. And then I had a couple of other clients where like literally nothing changed for them. That felt pretty frustrating to me. So I just kind of started digging into what might I be missing? What are some underlying uh, mechanisms of weight gain or resistant weight loss that might be at play here that 
I just didn't know about. And that was how I sort of stumbled into this world of environmental chemicals and their effect on our health. And that really just sort of blew my hair back as like, whoa, I have, why have I not been hearing about this? Um, this was almost 10 years ago at this point. So it was not as prevalent in the sort of public dialogue as it is now. And I just decided then that, you know, this was an area that felt super important and one that just not enough people were talking about. So I did, you know, spend a couple years reading everything I could get my hands on and researching and, and really trying to understand this issue from as many perspectives as possible, always looking at it through this lens of what can we do about this? And that was in 2012 is really when I started actively teaching about this. So I've been actively teaching for, you know, six and a half years now to mostly health professionals. So sort of a circuitous route, but that's how I ended up here. I know that one area you teach on, which I think is an area of interest for just about anybody, but people who follow this podcast, is this link between toxins and weight. because. Yes. Um, it, it's been my experience that what piece, most people even understand about nutrition is all about weight and weight loss or weight gain, and some information is better than others. And and I know that you actually teach a whole course about obesogens and how toxins affect yes. your weight. So I definitely want to talk about that. Tell us what you mean by by toxins, because I think that's a big word. But but I know from following you that we're being exposed to toxins every day in our home and in our environment. People may not know what they are. So can you talk yeah. about some of the common environmental toxins that we're all being exposed to? Yes. Well, it's it's a short word, but it's a big word. Like it's a loaded yes. word. Most people, when they hear the phrase environmental toxins, are thinking of things, you know, out air pollution, oil spills, external things that are sort of in the environment. While those things are, in fact, chemicals that can affect our health or there's, you know, toxins in our external environment that can affect our health as individuals, there's not a lot that you and I can do about it. You know, we were just talking earlier about, um, you know, what's happening in Hawaii with, you know, volcanic, volcanic eruptions and how that's contributing to very serious air pollution issues. But, you know, that's not something like I can't do anything about a volcano exploding. That's just going to happen. Right. (laughs) Right. And so that sort of falls outside of the mindset of something that we can actually address. And when that happens, we just tend to push it aside because it's like, I I can't do anything about it. I don't have room in my brain to worry about something I can't do anything about. So it gets pushed aside. But when I talk about environmental toxins, what I'm talking about and what the field of environmental health or environmental medicine is looking at are primarily the toxins that we are exposed to daily, every single day through living our normal everyday lives, toxins on cash register receipts and food packaging on our food, in our water, like they're just in our personal care products. Like these are what we're talking about when we're talking about toxins. That definition is sort of one facet of it. The other facet that I think is important to sort of contextualize is that you know, most people, when they hear the phrase toxin, are thinking, oh no, I've been exposed to a toxin. I better call poison control or get rushed to the emergency room because my hair's going to fall out, like whatever. That it's an acute toxin, that it's a poison. That is very rarely the case when it comes to environmental toxins. Um, instead, the effect of exposure to environmental toxins is this slow chronic buildup that happens over time that affects us on this sort of physiological level that's not obvious. You know, some of the uh, symptoms of exposure to environmental toxins may not manifest for 20 or 30 years. So there's a much greater latency period between exposures and, say, some type of negative disease outcomes. And since we're exposed to toxins all day, every day, it's really hard to tease out you know, oh, it was that one time I shampooed my hair that caused or created this problem. We can't actually say that in the field of environmental toxins. It's this cumulative effect. That's really what, you know, the phrase environmental toxins mean. What we're talking about, like I mentioned, are the things that sort of piggyback onto the products that we're buying and using every day and are thereby being exposed to in our homes while we're sleeping, 
you know, doing all the things that we do as humans and, and we're all exposed. Um, I, I think our, uh, some listeners might be very surprised to find out what some of those toxins are. And one of the things I learned from one of your first courses that I took, and I want you to quote the statistic because you probably know it better than me anyway, is how many hundreds of thousands of toxins that have been introduced to our everyday exposure since World War II. Well, so yeah, so there's 84,000 chemicals that are registered for use in the United States. That's an estimate. Uh, What's even more shocking than that number is that the federal government doesn't actually know how many of those are actively being used. So there's likely many chemicals of that 84,000 that have kind of fallen out of use because new new chemicals have replaced them or whatever. So we're likely not actively using 84,000, but that's how many are registered for use. Uh, Globally, the number is closer to 100,000. And, you know, we want to be careful when we're talking about chemicals or toxins, because we don't want to infer that, oh, there's 84,000 chemicals and they are all toxic. So many of the chemicals that are used in consumer products and manufacturing and in just in commerce, they're not going to cause any health effects or there's, you know, there's just no indication that they would. So we don't want to just kind of say, oh, all chemicals are toxic. That's just not a realistic statement or an accurate statement that we can make. And we don't want to uh, sort of conflate the idea that chemical, the word chemical automatically means or is associated with being toxic because everything is a chemical. Water is a chemical, air is a chemical, the hormones in our bodies that are naturally being produced are all chemicals. So we just, you know, what we're talking about are chemicals that have health risks, not all chemicals. So I think it's just an important distinction to make because we don't want to be alarmist about this conversation. That's what turns people off and that's what turns people away. I love the fact that you made that distinction because I do think that that happens sometimes. People just kind of go overboard and it creates not only the alarmist thing, but, you know, like people's eyes roll back like, oh, this is just impossible. So I I really like what you're talking about. One of the first things I remember becoming aware of was uh, BPA in water bottles. Yes. A decade ago. I think that's one of the things that, that people have heard about and they're familiar with. What I don't think they're familiar with, in, and I learned from your course, is that there are many different chemical makeup of BPA products. So they took out one and substituted it with another BPA product that's equally as harmful. So Yeah. And that's, that's, um, that's, what's, that's what's referred to as a regrettable substitution, which we have a lot of instances in this conversation about chemicals in consumer products. Um, where we have companies that are, you know, replacing a a bad boy chemical of the moment that everybody's, you know, got their feathers ruffled over, and rightfully so, and they simply replace it with a a nearly identical chemical, and that's really, you know, the the sort of poster boy for that has been BPA. So bisphenol A is a chemical that's used as a plasticizer uh, to make plastics rigid and hard, so they're found in things like Nalgene bottles and food processors and Vitamixes and that kind of hard shatterproof plastics. That's why they were used in in baby bottles because baby bottles are that sort of hard, rigid plastic, unlike a pull and spring bottle, which you can kind of squish in your hand. It's a different type of uh, plastic. And so bisphenol A is one chemical in a family of chemicals referred to as bisphenols. And so there's other members of that family. And it was actually mom's once they found out that bisphenol A not only was being used in baby bottles, but that this compound was leaching into formula or breast milk or whatever that was stored in those bottles, that chemical bisphenol A acts as a synthetic estrogen in the body at levels that we're exposed to. And so moms put up a stink. They, you know, had this whole stroller brigade that, you know, were taking strollers out onto the congressional lawn. And they really pushed for the phase out really is ultimately a ban of bisphenol A in the use of, of baby bottles specifically, but it was still rampantly used elsewhere. And so, you know, fast forward a couple of years, outside the mom community got hip to this problem and consumers really just started demanding that companies clean up their products. Like they didn't want to be exposed to these estrogens. So companies started to take action and phase out the use of bisphenol A in their products. But like I was saying earlier, they simply swapped them for a nearly identical chemical in the same family. In this case, 
BPS or BPF like Frank, uh, Frank. So, you know, when we're seeing a plastic bottle that says it's BPA free, that is a, you know, sure, technically it's free of BPA, but it may just have BPS or BPF and newer research into those uh, replacement chemicals are showing that they are just as bad, if not worse, from a estrogenic standpoint. So that's really, you know, this a poster boy example of this regrettable substitution issue. And, um, you know, unfortunately, bisphenol a, and increasingly their replacement chemicals are showing up in, you know, 98% of people tested by the CDC. So, you know, we're all being exposed to uh, these chemicals and the list of health effects from exposure to whether it's bisphenol A or other compounds that we're exposed to or chemicals that we're exposed to is long. Like it's not, you know, breast cancer obviously is one of them. And, and I think, you know, that that this is a, an unfortunately a large and growing community of women that are dealing in men, interestingly, that are starting to deal with more breast cancer. Um, pocket communities that, of men, there was actually a, um, a military base called Camp Lejeune, which had some, yeah, yeah. yes, and they had, and it's been years ago that sort of came to light, but they had a statistically higher incidence of male breast cancer because there was perchloroethylene, uh, which is a dry cleaning solvent uh, found in the groundwater. Oh, wow. uh, so, you know, that, that's, that's not a chemical that we're like buying that's hiding in our shampoo. That's more of like an industrial military application or issue, but it's a big deal. So, you know, toxins aren't just leading people or increasing risks of breast cancer. It's also thyroid disease, really any hormonal imbalance. It's infertility, it's weight issues, it's metabolism issues, it's gut health, it's neurological conditions like dementia and Alzheimer's, it's um, behavioral issues like aggression, depression, anxiety, ADHD, autism, got links to even things like allergies, eczema, skin issues. It's, you know, heart disease, diabetes, obesity, hypertension, like you name it there's some connection to chemicals in our environment. And there's a sort of increasing body of research that's suggesting that perhaps these chemicals are playing a much bigger role in the onset of disease than, than you know, we are currently recognizing. This is a bigger problem. And the more research that we, we're doing, we're, you know, it's, that seems to be the case. So I just, I think the time is now. Like right. we all have to start addressing this um, and, and dealing with it. And, you know, we've been doing it and that's why people have been talking about it more. It's in the news more, it's in the press more. Uh, you know, you've got articles coming out every single day, everywhere around the world that are talking about one facet or another of this. And I think that's great. I, I do. I, I think it's great. And yet I think people can become desensitized because it's just everywhere. Yes. So where are our most common exposures coming from? And I'll tell you my one, you know, big story that I, I always explain to my patients when I'm trying to get them to understand this. I, uh, in my own breast cancer recovery years ago, part of a uh, major part of my healing was I adopted baby parrots, you know, like from the incubator. Yes. People who listen to my podcast hear them in the background all the time. They're really, they're really talkative. <laughs> they were in the incubator. Or I was going down there. I'd never had birds before. I'd always been a cat person. And I was, you know, constantly learning about how to take care of birds. And as we were leaving the day with them, they said, oh, by the way, don't cook with anything in your house that has Teflon. Yeah. And I was like, what? And they said, oh, there's some invisible gas that put, is put off when you cook with Teflon that kills birds like instantaneously. Yeah. If it's putting off an invisible gas that's killing birds, what is it doing to us? We can't see it. We can't right. taste it. We don't know it's there. But if it's, if, you know, we know that animals have different sensitivities, but if they're that reactive to it, what's it doing to us? You know, well, and, that's, and that's referred to as Teflon toxicosis. And, you know, Teflon is, uh, people always use that term. I actually am a little sensitive to the use of that term only because it's just not accurate. So Teflon is a brand name. Right. Kleenex is for tissues or Band-Aid is for bandages. And so Teflon is a product manufactured by DuPont. And DuPont is certainly not the only manufacturer of nonstick coatings out there. So right. this applies for all nonstick coatings. But because Teflon was sort of the most ubiquitous, um, this issue with bird deaths or avian deaths around exposure to perfluorinated chemical gases that are released when these nonstick cookware pans, cookie sheets, whatever are heated to high temperatures, which often happens, 
referred to as Teflon toxicosis. That's obviously a very acute symptom is death. Like, okay, now you're alive, then you're not alive. That's acute symptom. There's no coming back from that one. In humans, that kind of exposure, high exposure that might happen in, in the home, for example, is referred to as polymer fume fever, and it actually mimics flu symptoms. So people might not even recognize that like, oh, it's because I overheated my nonstick pan because I forgot about it. And like for five minutes, it was just pumping these fluorinated chemicals into my air. And, you know, a couple days later, maybe I have the flu. It's so it that's, that's sort of the acute symptom of being exposed in a normal non-occupational setting. But the chemicals that are released from those nonstick cookware, and I'll just add that the class of chemicals is not just found in pans, it's literally found in dozens of places around our homes, are, uh, are, have a direct sort of beeline for our thyroid. Um, they can really mess with thyroid function. So, you know, people that have thyroid disorders or autoimmune conditions, like really need to be mindful of, you know, where they're being exposed to these items. And like I said, you know, cookware is just one of the places where we're finding fluorinated chemicals. It's also in food packaging. You know, if you're buying microwave food or you're getting takeout pizza, you know, the, 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 these chemicals are used as a lining on these papers to prevent grease from saturating the cardboard. So they're grease proofing. And so any paper that has grease proofing, you know, may use these chemicals to afford that, that quality. They're used in stain resistant, you know, carpet sprays and shoe sprays, like anything that's like a stain resistance. Um, it's not our friend. Let's just say that. Yeah. You know, you, you bring up the, the thyroid connection, which I think is pervasive to any number of health conditions that people are dealing with. But, but one of the things that I really talk about in terms of breast cancer recovery is I think that thyroid function is not often assessed. And even if it's given a look by a, a conventional practitioner, it's not often well assessed. And that's something that, that I think as health coaches and certainly me as a functional medicine practitioner, we, we look at it a little differently. Yeah. But I remember listening to a, a physician who's an expert in toxins who was saying that, um, going back to BPA, that they're finding that BPA is having an effect at cellular levels of thyroid yes. testing, but it's not doing anything to affect the one test that most doctors, and the only test that most doctors will run, which is TSH. Right. They, they look at that for thyroid function, but they're finding that these chemical uh, and these mimickers are are affecting thyroid function in the body, but not affecting the one thing that doctors look at to see if there's a problem. Right. So and that's, that's no longer even a valid test. And so when women are dealing with weight gain, brain fog, and inflammation, and fatigue, and all these things that are considered just the cost of going through treatment, there could be other causes than yeah. just treatment, which is what we're talking about today. Yeah, and I just think, you know, we're always, it's always important to just continuously look upstream from the issue. Like you have a symptom and you just ask the question, why are you having that symptom? Where is the weak link in the chain that's causing that symptom to, you know, that situation to to flare up or, or manifest? And, and yeah, you know, I think that all of these facets are evolving at the same time. Functional medicine is really growing right now and people are recognizing that, you know, the just like you were saying that the, you know, lab work that people are doing is just, you know, it doesn't, they need to evolve as well. And that's happening, but some of them are cost prohibitive for a lot of people. So it just, it sort of frustrates the, well, the problem. One of the, one of the things that our uh, listeners may not be aware of is um, the practice of medicine and how m medicine as a, as a profession incorporates knowledge tends to move very slowly. They're not oh, all yeah, there's like a on the cutting edge. And it's a 10 to 15 year gap between the research and practice. When people say, well, I'll talk to my doctor. Well, your doctor may not, what I often tell people is that uh, since in, since about the year 2000, when some researchers came out with what they called the 10 hallmarks of cancer, our understanding of cancer and what it is as a metabolic process has grown exponentially. But medicine is kind of stuck in their ways and they don't yes. necessarily incorporate that information. So when people are taking the information we're talking about today, their doctors may 
A, not know about it, may dismiss it and poo-poo it. And it doesn't mean it's not real. It just means that that's just not in the body of what doctors do. It's actually not. So a a number of years ago, I think this was, you know, maybe six or seven years ago. I don't know if there's been any updated studies uh, in this vein, but in the nutrition space, we all often get our feathers ruffled when we learn that, you know, the average medical doctor has between 19 and 21 hours of training in nutrition during their entire medical tenure. Like that's their whole education, that that's what they get. And, you know, that that's not good enough. And we're all like, well, geez, that's, that's ridiculous. That's crazy. Nutrition is huge. It's how we navigate preventative health issues is through, you know, good nutrition. And, you know, 19 hours, 21 hours isn't very much. That's the average. When it comes to environmental health, the average uh, practitioner only has seven hours of training, less than half of what we're seeing in uh, the field of nutrition. And we already know how undereducated the average medical uh, practitioner is in this space. And like, you know, to a certain extent, like I get it, no big deal. Like that's not, you know, if somebody's a surgeon, like I don't necessarily need them to know what I should eat for breakfast. I want them to be really good at surgery. Right. So when it comes to that kind of medicine, like it's not relevant, but when we're dealing with chronic disease, the majority of which is preventable, including breast cancer, like only a small percentage, I think it's less than 10% of uh, breast cancers have a genetic component. The remainder is environmental. And environmental in that context means environmental chemicals, it means lifestyle, it means do you smoke or not, it means exercise, it means all those things. That's what we're looking at here. So there's this huge education gap, there's this growing awareness because of, you know, increased media around toxins, but a lot of it tends to be, you know, frankly, it tends to be very sensational, it tends to be very sort of, not intentionally fear-mongering, but it's, it's not talking about actionable, practical solutions. And I think that's where, you know, at least for the sort of allied health professionals that I work with, that's really where the real sort of magic happens because when they can understand this practical application of like, well, what do I do about BPA in my life, then they can impart that information to the clients and patients that they speak with that are already dealing with chronic health issues. And what I found is that the type of people that seek out a functional MD, functional nutritionist, a nutritionist, a health coach, a chiropractor, an acupuncturist, it's because they've gone through the regular medical system and their symptoms are still there, they're getting worse and they've just been dismissed. They're kind of like at their end of their rope and they're seeking this allied professional because they need a different level of care. Right. Um, and they need somebody who's going to look at things from a different perspective. And I just think that's the beauty of, the, if, you know, if we're looking for a silver lining here, that's the silver lining that this issue of increased chronic disease, and, you know, certainly this isn't happening across the board, but I would like to see it happen across the board is that it empowers people to look at, at be proactive about taking care of their health. And this is a very specialized kind of area. So I, I don't, I really want to come back to more common exposures, but I just want to yes. put out there for anybody who's listening, how it specifically impacts breast cancer patients and something that I do teaching on and devote future episodes to is what happens when these toxins and chemicals are in the breast implants that are being used for reconstruction. And there's a whole growing body of evidence that some women suffer from immune problems from the Mm -hmm. chemical exposure of implants. It's called breast implant illness. And if anybody has any questions, please contact me. It's it's something that I teach on. I know that it can be a very politically charged statement. So I, I rabbit hole will go down on another podcast. I just really want to bring people's attention to the fact that there are some very specific things that affect women dealing with cancer and the and the treatment choices that we have to make. And that is actually one of you know, yeah. the chemicals that are used to make implants are known to be carcinogenic and neurotoxic. And so when women are having those symptoms, one of the places to look is is what kind of reconstruction they've had. The frustrating aspect about a lot of the chemicals that we're exposed to is, you know, some of them have a, you know, they're carcinogen. So they're very obviously cancer triggers in the body. And then there are all of the synthetic estrogen chemicals, these estrogen mimics that, you know, any kind of estrogen dominant or estrogen driven 
cancer, like breast cancer, like ovarian cancer, like uterine cancer, uh, they're just going to feed off that extra estrogen. And so when somebody's dealing with breast cancer or they're in remission and they dealt with breast cancer and they're a breast cancer survivor or they have breast cancer in their family and they're just, they want to be proactive about safeguarding their health to the best of their ability, we have to consider environmental chemicals. Like it's a non-negotiable for me, in my opinion, for anybody who's dealing with specifically uh, something like breast cancer because you've got these sort of multiple pathways that can uh, cause or contribute to this disease. So I love what you're saying there about cause and contribute, because I do know that there's a certain element of the community that, you know, when they hear about how nutrition can make a difference or how environmental toxins are affecting them, that they, they hear that as like, oh, great, you're blaming me for giving myself cancer. And I don't think that's what any of us are doing in terms of education. What we're no. trying to do is bring the awareness that there are things that you, you can control. There's a certain element. I mean, having a, getting a breast cancer diagnosis is the ultimate of, of feeling out of control. But yes. there are things that you can do. And so all of this education is meant to empower people to start becoming more aware and making, making changes that, aren't, that are manageable that aren't overwhelming and that these things make a difference. And the next area that I'd like you to talk about, I, I make it, made a note here uh, about synthetic estrogens because last week I, I had on the show a doctor who talks about Dutch hormone testing, which is a comprehensive yep. way of looking at estrogen levels. But this is also another area that I, I think causes a lot of fear because estrogen is, is uh, as I understand it, is a descriptive term, but it means a lot of different things. We have our natural estrogens that we make in our body. We have phytoestrogens that come from food, which are not yes. cancer-causing estrogens, but because it's got the word estrogen in it, anybody who has an estrogen-driven cancer freaks out. And then we have these um, environmental... Um, yeah, they're often referred to as xenoestrogens, which are right. foreign estrogens, estrogens from outside the body. Oh, thank you. I was looking for the word. But yeah, the xenoestrogens that are coming into our body at, and our body can't tell the difference. So it thinks yeah. that they're estrogen, but they're actually chemicals. So I'd like if you could talk about what are some of the everyday common exposures that we have and just in to be mindful of your time. Um, perhaps you could talk about what are some of the more estrogenic chemicals and how are we getting exposed to them? Yeah, on a daily sure. basis? So, I mean, the, the, the two sort of that I always go to first because they're both synthetic estrogens and because they're both super ubiquitous, we're just exposed in so many different places are the bisphenols, chem bisphenol chemicals. And I would just add to that all plastics. So like I said, bisphenol is just one type of plasticizer that makes plastics rigid. Um, and then there's another chemical called phthalates, which are used uh, in, in one capacity to make plastics soft and flexible. So your shower curtain, your rubber ducky, your plastic water bottle. Um, and they're also used in um, fragrances. So all of the fragranced items in your home, the dryer sheets, the scented candles, the plug-ins, diffusers, the dish soap, laundry detergent, makeup, hairspray, lotion, all those things that will have some type of synthetic fragrance added. Um, and, you know, both of those are sort of the ones that I encourage people to focus on so we can kind of take those one at a time. So, you know, uh, bisphenol A, like I said, it's just sort of one, it's one chemical in this plastic family. I really just, it's easier for us to just look at all plastics than it is to figure out like, no, no, does this one have BPA or not? All plastics, all kinds, even the bioplastics, interestingly, studied release some degree of compounds that mimic estrogen. So they all mm. produce estrogenic activity. Where plastics, like, you know, I don't want people to think that, you know, we have to be a Luddite and like go back into the like 1910s, you know, to before plastic was invented and that, you know, earlier part of the, uh, that century. We don't want to issue plastic because there's lots of things that in my house are plastic. My hair clip is plastic. My microphone's got plastic. Like, you know, there's plastic all around us. Where we want to focus are plastics that come in contact with our food. Right. That's our primary concern because those plastics and the molecules that make up those plastic containers easily migrate into the foods or beverages that we are consuming. 
and we are ingesting them. So they're like directly free pass right into the body. And so I encourage people to take a look at the plastics that they have in their kitchen that are coming in contact with food. Most people are using plastic Tupperware containers, Rubbermaid containers, whatever. Some people are reusing yogurt tubs and stuff like that for food. Those are sort of the primary places where, or those are the, that's the first place that I encourage people to start is to, you know, take a look at all those plastic food storage containers and toss them, get rid of them or move them so that they're in the garage and they're holding, you know, screws or nuts or bolts or something um, where we're not actively touching it and it's not touching our food. And I think that, um, you know, I know that I was just at Costco yesterday, you know, they had one like right next to each other. Here are the plastic containers and here are the glass containers. Yes, It's relatively easy to get glass containers or metal drinking bottles or glass bottles that you that are not reusable. I mean, part of it's a convenience factor. But these are, you know, simple changes that that I I think aren't going to impact anybody's daily life that much. No. Um, And, and, you know, I think that, you know, there's a slight bump in investment up front, but over time, I really believe that it this saves you not only in the sort of abstract, oh, it saves you in healthcare expenses, but, you know, think of how many times a year you end up buying new plastic containers because, you know, you gave one to a friend, you lost it, you know, whatever. And that just is, seems to be less the case when you're moving towards using better products. And one thing I have to really warn people against, even if you can't give it up for storage, do not put, do not reheat your food in the microwave in plastic. If anything, yeah. going to have it. Oh yeah. I mean, gases. When, when you're, well, it's less about gases actually. It's more about, you know, when you're heating plastic, you are uh, increasing the rate at which molecules from that plastic are being released into right. whatever product is in that container. So whether it's soup or whatever, or your leftover lunch, um, you're increasing the rate at which those chemicals are migrating right into your food. So this is not a, a gas issue right, right. wrapped in the microwave. It's just, it's in your food and now you're right. eating it. So, you know, that's, that's really the first thing is to just first start look at your stu- food storage containers and aim to replace with glass as much as possible. It's really inexpensive. You can even reuse glass pasta sauce jars if you, you know, aren't super tight budget. So there's, cheap or free ways to get around this. Um, From that sort of next step after that is really starting to look at the other plastic items in your kitchen. Are you using plastic spatulas? Are you using plastic pasta strainers, mixing bowls, measuring cups, all that stuff that's coming in contact with food, you just sort of slowly start phasing it out and replacing them with safer materials, glass, stainless steel, et cetera. Same thing with uh, plastic cutting boards. People put them in the dishwasher to wash them, not okay. You know, wood cutting boards are actually uh, safer and they harbor less bacteria than plastic ones. So people always think the opposite, but that's actually not true. So that's interesting. uh, Wood cutting boards do not harbor bacteria in the same way that plastics do, much, much less. So that's really step number one is just start reducing uh, the plastics that people are coming in contact with. The second step is just taking a really close look at the fragranced items and and phasing those out. uh, and the start with the low hanging fruit, start with the plugins and the Febreze's and the, you know, room freshener sprays and bathroom sprays. Like those are unnecessary products. Just throw them out. Like you just don't, that does, that's a free step. It doesn't cost you anything. Scented candles. Just, yeah. Um, scented candles, just toss them. It's all, you know, what you're doing is you're polluting the indoor air inside your home with these phthalates. And like I mentioned earlier, phthalates and, and bisphenols, et cetera, are another one of these synthetic estrogens that show that's is showing up in the vast majority of people. So start with the low hanging fruit. And then once you've cleaned up those areas and you're not using scented candles and you're not using plugins and air fresheners and all that stuff, then you start moving into the personal care product realm. You're going to have to take a look at perfume because perfume is nothing but, you know, musks and and chemicals that on their own can actually be problems problematic, but then there also is going to be a phthalate component to those fragrances as well. So what are your thoughts on essential oils? I was just going to say, unless you're using plant-based essential oils, and even then I encourage people to use those sparingly for lots of reasons, it's a whole nother topic, skip it. Right. 
Right. Yeah. yeah we, it, it strikes me, actually, being a nurse many, many years ago, they uh, sort of made it, I think it's kind of industry-wide, where they don't allow scents in hospitals and doctor's offices. Well, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention has a fragrance-free policy in their offices and have had for many, many years. So now when I run into somebody like on the street that's got perfume, I'm overly sensitive to it because I'm yeah. just not exposed to it anymore. But yeah. it's like, it's like, why did we think that everything in our lives had to smell like flowers, artificial well, flowers? And that's, and that's marketing because, you know, the, our sense of smell is actually the most powerful trigger of memory. And, um, you know, that's a, it's, it's connected uh, to our memory and emotion. So from a marketing standpoint, like that's great. That's gold. Right. I mean, there were studies, there was a study that was done in a casino where they pumped the smell of vanilla into a casino gambling hall. And the amount of money that people spent on gambling increased by like 20 or 30% because it smelled nice in the room. Wow. Wow. So like there's this psychological component to fragrance and companies that manufacture products that have fragrance recognize that. And so there's a lot of marketing that goes into the development of these products and these sort of signature scents because, you know, it's, a, you know, people, you smell a laundry detergent that was the one that your mom used growing up and you're like, oh man, it smells like mom. That's right. From a marketing standpoint, that's gold. I tell you to this day, if I, I don't smell it very often, but if I smell Old Spice, yep. I remember the 16-year-old boyfriend yes. I had in high school. Yep. I mean, it's an yes. automatic, it's the only, you know, I mean, literally. You yes, know, I'm the same way with some terrible Calvin Klein cologne. Right, right. Like, yeah, I dated when they really overdid it. You know? Yes, <laughs> like when, but like, like that's all I, that's all I could think of. That's it, immediately transported to being like 16 years old. So that's, that's why scent is so powerful. But you know, it's also unnecessary. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that when people sort of quote, detox their homes from all these synthetic fragrances, their palate changes in the same way that if you stop eating Fritos and Dunkin' Donuts and garbage food, you can take your, 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 your palate changes. So like you can taste the subtlety of flavor that you couldn't before because it was so deadened by, you know, these hyper palatable foods and high fat, high sugar, high salt. Eventually, you know, and now of course a vegetable tastes bland to somebody who eats that diet because their taste buds are like at 11 all right. the time. Right. So when you dial that down, you start to adjust. And the same thing happens with fragrances, as you know this, like once you sort of take them out of your life, when you are re-exposed to them, you're like, oh God, how did I ever think this smelled good. Right, right. So that's what happens. So it's, you know, we think we need it until we get rid of it. And then we're like, oh, I didn't need that stuff. Right. Also learned many, many years ago in terms of people dealing with anxiety and depression, they found that there's an uptick in the at holidays of people going to malls, not to shop, but because the smell of yeah. cookies yes. gives them that warm home feeling. Yeah. So, so once again, I mean, I, I think that's just... Well, it's, it's why real estate agents, you know, will sometimes bake a batch of cookies if they're showing a house because they want to evoke the feeling of home. So smell is a powerful, powerful trigger, emotional trigger for us. Think about how how many more sort of positive experience... It's not about like saturating ourselves with all these fragrances because it's it becomes deadening after a while. So like, let's clear the slate. Let's get rid of these super ultra saturated fragrances. Start kind of clearing that stuff out. So start with the, like I said, the scented candles, the air fresheners and the perfumes are sort of the first phase of this clean out. And then the second phase is really just looking at all of your personal care products. You know, women use an average of, I think it's 12 personal care products every single day. And through that are exposed to over 160 something chemicals before they even get out of the bathroom in the morning. So right. look, 10 years ago, it was actually pretty hard to find personal care products that weren't made with all these ingredients. And now, you know, because of consumer uh, demand and, and greater uh, understanding of these issues, there's more and more companies uh, more more than ever, I can't even keep up now that are producing lines of skincare and makeup and you know other personal care products that don't have harmful chemicals. They're not using synthetic estrogens. They're using plant-based ingredients. They're using essential oils. They're not using carcinogens in their products. And I think that um, that just helps all of us 
And for our listeners, I'm actually going to have a link on my website and in the show notes to actually what a couple of those products might be. And actually, it just strikes me with this. I think I'm also going to put up a link, maybe just like a little handout for people that uh, list these major toxins we've talked about and some of the more common things in our homes that are that we're being exposed to, you know, yep. just so people have like a reference sheet. I, I think yep. I make that available to our listeners. Well, I've also got a, 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 it's not as of, as of the recording of this podcast, it's not live, but it's going live any day now, uh, a resources page where I'm actually listing, you know, a curated selection of products that of companies that I like that, you know, you need a shampoo, go here, you need makeup, go there. Because this is something that a lot of my people in my audience are also asking for It's like, well, which are the products that are okay to use? Uh, that's that's a great resource, and and I definitely, um, as we come to a close, want to make sure we have time that you can talk about how people can access that. But I also know that this is another big area of interest for you. But I also want to mention one of the simplest things that people can do is is get a water filter, you know, yes. for your yeah. kitchen and the unknown one for your shower, because yeah. um, all of those things you're trying to filter out of your drinking water in the kitchen are being aerosolized in hot water in your shower, and you're inhaling yes. them, which is an ultra effective way yes, to, to get, get right into your body. body. You know, so um, so people will often be very mindful about water filters, but not realize that your shower is, is as big of, of an issue. So I know you've done a whole course on how to find water filters for your area, but just to bring it to people's attention that, you know, like I, you can certainly talk about it, but a carbon-based water filter for your kitchen is one of the simplest ways. I think it was last week that they came out and said they found uh, opiate residue in uh, shellfish in Seattle. So yeah, because it's in the water, yeah. Yeah, so our water is like a huge source well, of our toxins. Our water also has nutrition. estrogen in it right? because of birth control pills. And this estrogen doesn't get filtered out at the plant. So when you take, so someone takes a birth control pill and, you know, not all of the estrogen in that pill or whatever progesterone gets metabolized and the rest of it gets excreted in our urine and, again, works its way back to the water treatment plant, well, back to our drinking water, um, and doesn't actually get that stuff filtered out. So, you know, I think yes to filtering your water. Absolutely. It's a, you know, it's not the most inexpensive solution because it will, you know, usually set somebody back a hundred bucks or a couple hundred bucks, depending on what's happening with their water. But I think what people fail to recognize is that, you know, the average water filter may not work for you. And depending on what's in your water, you may need sort of bigger guns to deal with what's there. And that's um, where people, you know, will end up for sure wasting money and buying some filter only to realize like, oh crap, my water has fluoride in it and my filter doesn't take that out. So why did I spend this money? So, you know, that's why I created this course because it was, you know, for my clients, it was one of the, you know, the number one question that I would get was which type of water filter to get. So if people want to check, um, you know, want to learn about what's in our water, how do we find out what's in our water? Because, you know, your water is vastly different from mine, but it also might be vastly different from someone who lives an hour from me. You know, we really do have to, um, you know, it's like nutrition. There is no one size fits all. Same thing with our water filters. We have to really build them around what's happening in our unique situation. And, And so people can certainly just head over to my website if they want to check that out. Well, I think, you know, today you've You've just given so much very practical information because, as I said, one of the goals for this podcast today was to make it accessible to people and decrease the overwhelm and really understand some very practical things that they can do. And I think you've presented certainly a lot of information on that. I just wanted to give you an opportunity if you had any last thoughts on how to decrease the overwhelm to talk about that and also to give people the links to reach you to find more information, to take one of your classes if they're interested. People can reach out to me and I can provide uh, information and links to you. But if you want to talk about that in our last few minutes, I think that would be a great way to bring our conversation to a close. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, in terms of avoiding overwhelm, you know, I think that there's always going to be some degree of overwhelm overwhelm with anything new that we learn, including something that has the potential to be scary. But, you know, the fastest way to shift out of that overwhelm is to shift into action. 
Because as soon as you start taking action, you're like, oh, I got this. I can handle this. And I think that that's, you know, that's our goal is we, you know, we want to shift you into taking action steps or we want people to shift into taking action steps. So, you know, uh, uh, sort of my, my motto in this whole big conversation of environmental toxins is to help people change the things that they can control so they worry less about the ones that we can't. I can't worry about a volcano erupting. I can right. do the best. Like I can control the aspect of it that, for example, to use that example, that I can control, which is whether or not this, you know, the chemicals and ash, et cetera, are coming into my house through the use of something like an air filter. So, you know, I can't control the pollution in some, you know, waterway, but I can control what products I buy and bring into my house uh, and expose myself to. So change the things we can't control and just don't worry about the rest because stress is toxic. And, you know, especially if people are, you know, dealing or sort of swimming in this cancer waters and breast cancer waters, there's already a layer of stress there. So we need to allow for some grace in this conversation. We just do the best that we can, change what we can, and sort of bless and release the rest. And we'll get to it later. Like we'll get to it when we're able to. And that's really, um, you know, how I would suggest people look at that. And, um, you know, if people do want to learn more, if they want to come check me out, uh, they can just go to my website, which is lauraadler.com. It's L-A-R-A-A-D-L-E-R.com. You can find me on Instagram at environmental toxins nerd. Basically where where I spend most of my time. So people can come and say hi and connect with me there if they want. Well, I know you're a highly respected environmental toxin nerd in the communities that I travel in. So I so appreciate you giving us your time today. Yeah, of course. As Lara mentioned, she's going to have some resources on her website, and I'm certainly going to have some in the show notes. So if you're listening to this and weren't someplace you can take notes, not to worry, the information is out there. Just to piggyback on what Lara said, I think uh, particularly when it comes to breast cancer and how it's affecting us, I think there is understandably so much fear and sometimes it can result in a freak out but I think it just starts with education and and in all of this as Lara said not every chemical on the planet is going to give you breast cancer but really understanding what some of the high hitters are you know and some of the ones that really we really can reduce or eliminate in our daily exposure that aren't going to be too complicated to do is is really the place to start as I said if if uh, the whole breast implant illness is a whole different topic but if you have questions about that you can certainly contact me at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com. That's certainly something I've been studying for a while since I went through it when I had expanders in. On my website, you can also schedule time for a free consult and we can talk about that and also get information about the upcoming groups. I appreciate all of you joining us today and I so appreciate, Lara, you joining us and being so free with your information. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, This has been great, and I'm sure that there will be lots of questions, so I'll probably just be forwarding them to you. (laughs) (laughs) Or referring to the courses of yours that I've taken on my own. And and if you are a healthcare practitioner or a coach or somebody who works in this area and you want to learn more um, so that you can incorporate it in your work with clients, please check out Laura's courses. She has smaller courses. She has a larger course. She has a certification course. You can do as much of a deep dive into this area as suits your personal needs. So that's uh, definitely something I want to let you know as a resource. And I think this is just information that probably any practitioner could incorporate into their practice. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Until next time, take care. Thanks for listening. If you have questions or feedback, you can reach Deborah at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com or her website, www.MindBodyNutritionRN.com. You can also find us on Facebook under Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For. For future episodes, subscribe on iTunes, where you can also leave positive reviews. Until next time.